0: This is kind of an emergency pod. Meg and I have been talking about doing an episode like this, and then when the threat of the governor's thing dropped last night, uh, you texted me at like what eleven. I,
1: th- I think it <laughs> and was like, almost Do you midnight. Talk tomorrow? Because talk about central nervous systems, I was wide awake. I was wide awake, yeah. and I, I just, I didn't fight it. I was just like, all right, this is my brain could not settle because. I've been thinking about our community for months now, as you know, cause I, I, you know, we've been talking about this and then I think I reached out as I, as we started to end summer thinking, oh gosh, what I would really love to be able to do is get some information out to our community about how do we do this as well as we can, yeah. right? In these colder months. And then after I heard about Inslee's uh, upcoming press, press conference, I just thought, you know, this needs to happen now.
0: Hey there, it's Luke. I was going to do a jokey thing about Kim Jong-Insley reinstituting coronavirus restrictions, but I've been editing this somewhat emergency. If it was an emergency podcast, I would have had it out on Monday because we recorded it on Sunday. Uh, I've been trying to get it done in time for the first weekend post the onset of these new restrictions uh, that came into effect on Tuesday. Because, you know, people are suffering, quite honestly and unironically. This is going to be tough, very, very tough for all of us. And I think I could probably cobble together a skit, but I'm just, I'm tired, y'all. And, you know, if, if we've learned one thing from this crisis is that self-care is important. And this is actually one of the things we're going to hear today. We're speaking with local mental health professional Meg curtin Raybear, a friend of mine. We'd been talking about doing something like this for a while. But then when cases spiked massively across the nation, but specifically in Spokane County and surrounding counties and Kootenai County and and then Kim Jong-Insley announced those restrictions, it sort of changed the calculus and the direction of this episode a little bit, but in pretty important ways. So here's Meg talking about that.
1: It's kind of funny when we were first getting started with moving forward. Yeah. I think I was thinking more, okay, the winter's coming. Let's do what we can with our community to just grow this sense of understanding that we're all in the same place in terms of it being hard. But also, I think for me, the bigger piece being that hard looks and feels different for each and every one of us. But that doesn't mean it's not hard. Now, I feel like someone just dumped a hot bowl of soup in our laps Mm -hmm. and we're all trying to get out of the way of the you know discomfort of that
0: so it kind of starts as this like harm reduction thing but then we got into some pretty deep interesting weird territory that touches not just on the coronavirus but the election and a lot of other fissures in our society and how we might at least on a person by person level mend them it follows then that you can it's not up to any individual person to be a foot soldier in the fact-check wars or in the uh, the morality wars or the wars of the fundamental truth or falsity of human existence. Exactly. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. God, that's a fucking relief because that's how I've been feeling. and honestly, I feel like that's the way a lot of people have been feeling. So this is the sort of stuff I wanted to talk to her about, in addition to just the normal self-care. Aspect of things. Did she have any ideas for how we might repair individual relationships and in, done on a large enough scale? Could we maybe repair our extremely broken society? Time will tell if we get there or not. And honestly, uh, it's largely dependent on how widely you share this episode. So, you know, the only hope that we're going to save the world with this episode is if the whole world listens to this episode. So please like, share, subscribe. (laughs) In all seriousness though, the extent to which we come out of this mentally well is largely the extent to which we get comfortable having difficult conversations with ourselves and with others. Here's Meg one last time before we dip into the full interview.
1: Because this is tough. This is really, really hard. And I think we need to be saying that. We need to be acknowledging pretty regularly. This is potentially for most of us, the hardest thing we're ever going to do as a collective. And we can do it and we can do it well in context, but we have to be talking mm. about it.
0: And talk about it we shall. May Curtin and Ray bear coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten and this is Range. Episode 18, what to expect when you're expecting a much longer pandemic.
1: I think there are two different things like had we been able to have sort of our status quo but keep going right I still like I that that was my framework initially like this is going to be hard no matter what but now I feel like it's even harder
0: because we're going backwards or because how much of it is the literal new restrictions or just the perception of those restrictions I guess
1: that's the question (laughs) that's I mean that's what's important that yeah. we are in that dilemma, but we don't understand it. Like I think, I think that's the conversation that needs to happen. I listened to the entire press conference, and I just kept waiting. I'm like, okay, somebody talk about mental health. The closest yeah. we got was uh, the nurse
0: from Sacred Heart, right? Yeah,
1: saying we're uh, we're burnt out, we're exhausted. Please, you know, yeah, yeah. D- pay attention to that. But I think. Why was there not a, uh, there? why was the state mental health ombudsman not there? Why was there not a, spo- or a Seattle uh, psychologist? Like there's no one talking about that bigger picture. And Inslee tries, but his job is to manage infrastructure and systems and keep people alive. Right. He doesn't have to care about how uncomfortable we are. He does, but he doesn't. He, Technically, his job is to do things that keep us alive, even if that makes us uncomfortable.
0: Right. And that doesn't mean that doesn't obviate the need to do these things, but it also means that there should be someone sort of stepping up to be like, okay, cool, this is what it means for you. And here's how you can, you know, some steps to work through it.
1: If only to say what you just said. They, these are rollbacks. Yeah, we are going to have feelings about the very fact that they're rollbacks, even if the rollbacks don't impact us. I mean, I was all geared up. What's going to happen? Zero is going to happen to me, except perhaps have to wait in a grocery line a little bit longer than I might have anyhow. And so in those moments of press conferences, what I would really like to be seeing is someone at the end saying, okay, so let's just take a minute to talk about this is tough and we're all going to have different reactions to this. That's normal and that's okay. You know, so first normalizing the fact that everyone's grief is their grief. Um, I, I did a lot of uh, research at one point on grief at the very beginning of the pandemic, just listening to a lot of podcasts, a lot of people talk about their own practice as grief therapists. And one of the mm-hmm. things that really resonated with me is this idea that my worst grief is my worst grief. And you and I could stand in the same room and say, I have a worst ever grieving experience. And that is all that we should ever have to do like i don't have to tell you my story and there's there should be no comparison because psychologically speaking it turns out that my experience of my worst grief is similar to yours no matter what the grief so it's that idea that what we need to be helping people understand one person's processing of this information will look different from the others yeah but that doesn't make yours bad and it doesn't make theirs bad
0: right and i mean we should say that there will be people that are you know, materially, massively, massively affected. Like, you know, I'm guessing most of our friends and family who work in food service are going to get laid off again, starting today, starting now, starting an hour ago when the press conference ended. People can just assume that, right?
1: Yeah. And and that fear. So then, then the other issue going on is that there's a lot of fear. So we're releasing more cortisol, more adrenaline, more endorphins, which is hard on our body. Which changes the way we have access to our brain, which affects our ability to be problem solvers, to be generous, to self-soothe.
0: Cortisol and those sort of chemical responses. That's like the fight or flight mechanism that kicks in where it's like, you know, when you're when we were all evolving on the savannah or whatever, it was like we're not we're not trying to have an we're trying to anau- analyze a threat here. We're trying to run away from a predator. Sort right. Of vibe, right?
1: Right. The theory is that, you know, our nervous system sort of developed to be more complex and started with yeah. the basic primal fight, flight, freeze, and moved into this more complex social reciprocity, safe and social state. But yeah, in moments like this, most of us are kind of moving up and down. We're not spending a lot of time in a safe and social state. We're not feeling really great about things right now. Yeah. We're having trouble making eye contact, solving problems, remembering. There are two major psychological symptoms I'm seeing right now. People are talking about having foggy brains all the time and being really tired.
0: Mm. And that's, a, that's just a response to pure day-in, day-out stress or?
1: An increased generalized level of stress and anxiety. Oh. Anxiety is, for all intents and purposes, contagious. If you walk into a party and someone screams and everybody rushes to that space, and then if people are starting to get really anxious, you write your own biochemical response, your your body responds to that because we're hardwired to stay alive. And so our nervous system doesn't just read cognitive cues it it scans the whole like it's listening to your all the things your body's doing and so we have an anxious response and even if it turns out that someone got startled and there really was nothing wrong you know maybe you're in another room at the party but your ears pricked up you maybe turned around for a minute and waited to see okay does that scream followed by anything but we right. have some level of response to anxiety no matter what and if We could measure anxiety in the world pre-pandemic and now. There's just an increased generalized tension.
0: Like a magnetosphere of anxiety in the the human population.
1: Because you can't go anywhere without thinking about the pandemic. Right. You can't even go into the woods, quite frankly, because you're on a trail and someone's coming at you and you have to debate mask, no mask, step aside, don't care, even if you don't like, even if you're not following any of the rules, you're still aware that the person coming at you might be.
0: I guess I don't know what the next obvious question to that sort of reality is. Except if you are in this, like, cortisol state, you know, where you're being hashtag triggered. Uh, but it's all the time, right? There's a book that I read part of because I'd read this guy's memoir. His name is Robert Sapolsky. I think he's, a, like, an evolutionary biologist or something. But his memoir is called A Primate's Memoir. It's really good. But I think what made him famous was this book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it was talking about how that fight or flight response when it get, when it's in an, you know, an ungulate an animal that's just used to running away from problems and then grazing ninety-five percent of their life or whatever, it's like the, the cortisol turns on and off and it's not it doesn't, you know, destroy your body. Cortisol is a is a chemical designed to like help you outrun stuff. It's not designed to be coursing through your body at all times, and it causes things like ulcers in people. And so, like <clears throat> one of the ideas of the book is that like we evolved these complex nervous systems and the ability to think and feel and, and actually sort of uh, predict threats, but we, we still have that cortisol response, and that those things are sort of tied together. And so if you you know if you're an anxious person or you have a lot of anxiety in your life, there's you're gonna be running those chemicals, and it's gonna have like physical impacts on your body. And if if what I hear you saying and it sounds right, we've got this magnetosphere of anxiety all over the world as uh jenny dirk and the mayor of seattle pointed out like there's not a there's not a corner of this globe that is not now affected by this how do you how can people how can families how can caretakers what 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 are some steps that we can take to just at least take care of our little corner of things even if we have no control over anything else
1: hmm. That's a big question to unpack. So you're right. Cortisol is intended to be something that our body releases when we need it and when we need it only. It's not something we're supposed to be releasing all the time. And as someone who works in complex trauma, you know, with people who've been struggling for sometimes decades, the impact of prolonged exposure to cortisol can be really powerful and significant and harmful. Now, I want to be really clear. What we're going through right now certainly increases our cortisol levels, but we're going to be okay as a society. We can do this, okay. right? And that's an important thing. Anytime I put any kind of big statement like that out, I always like to center it in in space, so to speak.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I am not talking about us right now. We have access to resources that help to to lower those levels. But I think it's important to understand that even for people who normally have no experience of really anxious moments, it's very hard to avoid them right now. And so that's just one piece of this. So then what we do is from the simplest level, self-care has never been more important, And self-care in a colder climate in darker times becomes a little bit more complex, right? Because access to some of the things I think we normally use to survive these times, right? Winter is hard on our mental health period.
0: Right. Seasonal affective disorder is real whether there's a pandemic or not.
1: Yes, yes. And, (laughs) And funnily enough if that's a word it comes along with the pandemic like it's it's tagging along yeah right so we we get to have the pandemic along with our seasonal affect issues so you know sunlights are a huge thing right now vitamin d uh getting outside 20 minutes a day as much as you can you don't you don't have to go anywhere really you don't have it it doesn't have to be sunny but 20 minutes mm. of uv light exposure is profoundly helpful so if you only have the energy to sit on your stoop or your porch, or you know, walk around your block three times, it's still really, really helpful. Okay. Um, the other thing that's very important right now is connection. And I think how we connect with people, and maybe we talk about that in a different context, but how we connect with people is very limited right now, but making yeah, sure right. that our time on social media is actually interactive. So one of the things that's really not good for our mental health and our anxiety right now are reels. And I forget what they're called on TikTok, but like that, that endless scrolling. It's called
0: doom scrolling. (laughs) That's a new term that I've heard. I think it's, it's a pandemic related term. It's also (laughs) tends to be related to politics, but, uh, but yeah, doom scrolling.
1: Well, it fits because it's not good for your mental health either. We need to be like <laughs> commenting on posts or making posts or, you know, interacting in some way. Um, small acts too are really important. Dropping a meal off for someone, donating, collecting blankets and giving them to homeless shelters. You know, that it doesn't have to cost anything. You can make a a pot of chili and drop a mason jar of chili off at your neighbor's house. But this idea that you can do something that impacts someone else's mental health makes you feel better. And all of those things help cortisol. I think the other thing though is exercise because in primates and in other animals, when they're overwhelmed by cortisol, their bodies after whatever incident, like a zebra is being chased by, uh, I don't know what chases a zebra, a lion, lion maybe.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> if they survive, their whole body afterwards is just going to shake. Yeah. And it's shaking because that's the release of cortisol. Mm. I want you to imagine a grown man on a street corner shaking uncontrollably we've uh, edited that out of acceptable in our society.
0: Right. And so you just sit there and you're still humming at a certain frequency. You aren't necessarily shaking. But that happens to me all the time. That happened, uh, you know, like I I feel like I uh, had a fear response before jumping on this call because I still get a little nervous whenever I, you know, start interviewing someone even after doing it for a decade. And even though we're friends, it's like there's still a moment where my body's like this isn't entirely safe and not because I'm in physical danger, but because it's something that matters to me that has some sort of stakes in my brain somewhere. And I, I still get a little bit of that, you know, that's that sort of tickle and, and, and the whole, the exercise thing, I, God, that's it's maybe this can be a a free therapy session for me for a moment, but like, that's the thing that like, I know this is the thing that I know. And I've known this my whole life, not just in the pandemic that like, I am a better, healthier person when I just get a little bit of exercise in. Mm -hmm. And there's something self-defeating, at least for me. And you can tell me if this is not uh, just me, and maybe it's more uh, universal than this. Like The moment I get a little stressed and I'm like, okay, I've got to focus on uh, whatever's stressing me out, whether it's like a lot of work or a bunch of different things I have to do today. It's like the thing that I know would outside of actually checking off boxes on my to-do list would like make me just feel a little more chill and make me feel less stressed is the last thing I even consider doing. Like, I don't even think about it. I'll blink and two weeks have gone by, and I haven't gotten any exercise because I'm stressed. So I don't know what the question is there, but are there sort of strategies you give the people you work with to be like, okay, when you, when you feel yourself in a space that you've identified as being anxious or, or sort of counterproductive, Is there like a a checklist you can run through to be like, okay, what I really need to go do now is the thing that always works for me, which is X.
1: Um, To some extent, we all struggle with motivation. It might not be about exercise, but we all struggle with motivation one way or the other. Uh, You know, maybe it's the laundry. Maybe it's uh, (laughs) grocery shopping. These days, for me, it's grocery shopping because especially at the beginning of the pandemic where it involved... Washing everything, or supposedly involved washing everything, I I would have eaten rice and beans until the cupboard ran dry rather than go yeah. to the grocery store. Right? Um, yeah. Even though I know you know fruits and vegetables are really good for me. Exercise is tricky because I think, especially right now in our lives, uh, we are a very very busy race. We just go 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 go. And so if you're struggling with a lot of different things, it can be very easy to sort of imagine that 30, 40 minutes or even 15, 20 minutes as too much time, right? So I think in terms of when we're trying to help people to get out there, I I would ask people to be mindful of a couple of things. First and foremost, failure, I don't love that word, but if you don't do it, The worst thing that you're doing for yourself is getting upset that you didn't do it. If you don't exercise, you don't exercise. It didn't fit into my day. I'm okay, right? Right? So what we tell ourselves about what we do is probably the most impactful thing out there. If I'm trying to make a change in my life and I get mad that I failed, I'm increasing the likelihood I'm gonna be unsuccessful again. Hmm. What I need to be doing more than anything is noticing, what can I tell myself that puts one foot in front of the other? Okay. Today didn't work. What can I do tomorrow that gets me a little bit closer? Yeah. Right? Um, And then I think the other thing that's really important is we set goals that tend to be way too large. We need to feel success grows success. All, I mean- I'm not getting tangential here, but there's a whole different part of kind of caring for ourselves as human beings that is attached to what I'm about to say. But there's the research shows that punishment, negative consequences, taking things away, blame, shame, they don't create change. Hmm. They don't make growth. They send us into our, the center, our sympathetic nervous system where the fight And flight is. They shut us down. Grounding is a really good example. We 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 can't hold on to what happened and why it happened and what we need to do next. What works to create behavior change is celebrating what we do well, hands Mm -hmm. down. And so I would say this to all of the parents whose kids are struggling right now. If you are focusing on what they're not getting done, we're accidentally feeding all the anxiety and fear and disappointment and discomfort. If we notice the little things they do, even if it's get up on time and go to school, if that's all they do, celebrate it. And so, Mm. because then they notice and because it's relational. I love you. I love what you've done. And we can do that to ourselves. All right. I didn't Mm. exercise today, but I did get up and I did think about it. So tomorrow I'm going to think about it again. And maybe I'll go outside for five minutes. And you want to set goals that are super tenable and super successful. So if I want to add exercise back into my life and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it three days a week. Don't start there. Start with once. Between Monday and Friday, I got to get outside. And if you want to exercise for 30 minutes, start with 10. I want to get outside for 10 minutes. I'll walk around my block, right? And because then when you're successful and you feel better afterwards, it's easier the next day to get up and do it again.
0: Hmm. I asked for questions from uh, people in the range, private group, which is available to people who uh, subscribe to the, the newsletter. That was a little plug. <laughs> there were a lot of questions from parents or people with working around kids this might be a good place to tie in. Like, let's see if I can find one. How can we as adults model for our kids during this difficult time and allow them to be able to feel all their feelings without judgment? And then the same question, for yo- but for younger kids, you don't understand what's happening. is like, how do you explain why mommy cry? mommy is worried and cries sometimes? So I like, guess okay. how do we how do we sort of both model behavior for our kids in this situation, but then also sort of talk to them in a way that doesn't feel catastrophic? I mean, one of the, one of the things that like I think we've talked about um, previously to this, and and. I could see being kind of connected to what you just mentioned was like the idea that like our kids, especially you're in a high school situation and your kids are going through a bunch of firsts and lasts. It's like, what happens if your son doesn't, you know, your son or daughter doesn't get their final season of whatever sport they play, or they feel like they don't get all of those milestones, like the senior all nighter or whatever. Like, I don't know, maybe what's, what's that going to do to them? And how can we sort of help model behavior that's that, I guess trains resiliency. I don't know what's what's even right. the goal.
1: Right. So this is a really complex question, and I'm going to take a stab at this. But I feel like this is one of those questions that is really best played out in several conversations because it's so nuanced. I think overall, the first thing I really want our communities to understand is. Being genuine about how you feel, like if, if you're stressed, if you're anxious, if you're sad, if you're disappointed, if mommy is crying, to be able to tell your kids, I'm just having a hard time today, right? Today, the pandemic is a little bit harder for me than it was yesterday. Yeah. When you have little kids and you give them that message, you give them the freedom to be confused. Mm. And I think one of the hardest things about experiences like this, where it's sort of A bombardment of new, just new all the time. We we, we can't quite adjust because there's no finish line. We don't know. Do I settle in? Do I hold off? Am I holding on? You know, what am I doing? When we acknowledge out loud, I don't always know what I'm doing, but I'll be okay. We'll be okay. We yep. give our children the freedom to understand that they don't always have to have the right answer and, and not, but that it's okay to be vulnerable, Yeah, that it's okay to be confused. I think we, especially in this digital age where information is like at the tip of our fingers, I think we often expect that we're supposed to know everything, yeah. know better, be able to Google that. There's nothing in Google on this one. <laughs> Um, you know, so that's the, that's the first thing. I think the older our kids get, obviously the more complex their experiences and what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic, especially for our seniors and our incoming freshmen, you know, at whatever levels they were at. Right, Um, And all these people who uh, I think even in the the start of the fall here, you know, I would see things on various social media about people whose kids are in football and they're worried, you know, is my kid going to get scouted? It's their senior year. Like, what about their scholarships? Like all these these fears. Ultimately, our kids are going to be okay. But what's important about pausing there is this is not intended to be a platitude, right? Like I, I want people to understand we will survive this. But there is going to be loss and there is going to be grief. And we may not have the experiences we thought we were going to have. But how we as adults talk to our kids about this journey, it really, really matters. And I think, you know, when we're holding on to this idea that, oh, you're not going to get this experience and we don't also take time to say, but we're going to be okay. Yeah. We get stuck in this place of grief and and loss, which this is why it gets really complex. Everybody grieves differently. And some of us need to hold on to that a little bit longer. But I think ultimately to move us through in the healthiest way possible, we need to be acknowledging, yeah, this really does suck. I think it's very okay. We should be saying that. This is really hard. And the next four-ish months, they're going to challenge us. They're going to ask us to dig really, really deep. And in those moments, those of us who have children, we are going to have to sit with our children in some very uncomfortable places, especially if we can't see each other like we did over the summer.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: And so, you know, if your kids are having complex feelings, being able to just say, hey, I'm here if you need me. Your feelings matter. And, you know, let me know if, if you want to talk to me or someone else. Right, I, I I do think we should really be encouraging people to talk as much as possible. Uh, Spokane has a very busy but very good, robust mental health community. You know, mental health providers, and this is what we do: we help people in these moments when we can't quite sort it out ourselves.
0: One of the other reader questions kind of ties into this. Where can people look for affordable therapy? Like, you know, again, if, if you're laid off, one of the more fucked up things about our system is that you, you know, you lose your job, you probably lose health care. So people feel like they need therapy. Where can they find it affordably? Uh, do you have an answer for that? Or is there a good answer for that?
1: Yeah. So it depends a little bit on the situation. Um, because if you're furloughed and you maintain your health insurance, you should be able to get mental health care through your health insurance. If you can't afford your co-pays or your deductibles, you should talk to the therapist. Almost every therapist in every community in this country offers sliding scales, reduced rates. There are sort of legal and contractual things we have to do in terms of equity and billing, but it is always worth an ask. And the I, I can't, I, I'm not 100% sure where every single insurance company is at, but a lot of insurance companies have done things like waive co-pays and oh. deductibles. Yeah, I, I'll say this just because I, I think it bears getting attention. No matter what you think about how any other aspect of caring for our communities has gone, I have hands down been very impressed with how this country handled the mental health aspect of things from the mm. get-go. Telling, uh, the entire nation, see your therapist. If it's over the phone, fine. If it's over telehealth, fine. If they go to another state, fine. Like these are things that normally we have to jump through major hoops to make happen. And then insurance companies said, guess what? No copays, no deductibles. So that's another thing. If someone's worried, they can call their insurance company. That's one thing. If also if you're furloughed or if you're working in, but, but uh, you have a family member who's lost their job and so money is just tight. Many employers have uh, EAPs and EAPs often have, will give you usually about 10 sessions that are covered by the employer's insurance. So that's another option.
0: What does EAP stand for?
1: Employee Assistance Program. Okay. I think, Um, you know, and and then the, like for those who have truly lost their jobs and it's interesting because this came up in the press conference today a little bit, I think in one of the follow-up questions, you know, you're entitled to get state insurance, The tricky bit is the last time this happened, the sort of virtual line was really, really long. But what Inslee said this, you know, today was, hey, that had more to do with the fact that we had to make a very quick decision and then get a huge organization, double or triple its capacity. Yeah, right. So I'm hopeful that this go round, there will be faster access. Um, and then finally, most therapists also offer a sliding scale. So I, I mean, we are all aware, Luke, every single one of us is aware of just how important our jobs are right now, just how much the community is in need of that extra support. And so I, I would reach out. And then I think actually to kind of wrap this up, anyone looking for a therapist should call and get on any wait list they can, because the thing is, a lot of us are really busy, uh, Yeah, right. but right. people drop out. And if you're on multiple wait lists, you're just going to increase your chances of, of getting- finding somebody. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So in, in addition to whatever sort of um, difficulty you might have with personal finances, there's the fact that there are a lot of people needing mental health services right now and that you know the existing supply of therapists <laughs> is very busy.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: do we- as a society and maybe as a world, but certainly as an American society, is it is it unhealthy for us to assume that things are gonna be normal all the time? It feels like there's a sense of like what a normal American life should be. <laughs> and when that gets broken as a society, we freak out. Uh, But I'm also, so not just separate from this pandemic, we're, you know, experiencing increasing like political fissures that seem untenable. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that came out of this press conference was that I was, you know, doom scrolling the comments as I sometimes do. And it was just like, you know, it feels like we're in the middle of a fundamental break about what it means to be an American, what it means, you know, people are having fundamental disagreements about the nature of reality for God's sake. And then, you know, we've got climate change coming up and all this other stuff. So I guess... This question that I've been having is big and broad is like, do we have we grown up to assume a level of normalcy that's not healthy to assume given that things are maybe not going to be normal for a while or a really long time or maybe ever again, or maybe normal is just changing.
1: I think I would ask, what is normal? Yeah. I don't know that I even really like that word. I think pretty frequently in my practice, I'll actually de emphasize that word. I think that as we kind of move forward as a country in particular, we are discovering that normal thinking you know, for me, normal American family, I end up with this sort of 1950s image in my head. And I well, totally and I really feel like starting with the 60s and kind of moving forward, we've been elbowing the edges normal. of normal yeah. and trying to bump it out and it's interesting that you ask this question because I think there are so many layers. If you look at gender identity and sexual identity right. and the fluidity of all of it, that's a real example of where um, we have elbowed the edges of normal out even further. Right. I actually think these moments are evolution and they're incredibly important. Um, do they require that we become a more flexible species? I think that's really the question. How do we learn to live very much in the moment? I'm here right now. I'm having this conversation with you. This right. moment feels good. I am okay. I'm present. We, uh, because of the way our society is is built, we are very focused on this idea that we have to achieve these certain things at this certain right. time. Right. And so that makes us very forward focused. And then we also come with a lot of blame and guilt which makes us very back-focused. So we tend hmm. to forget to live in the space we're actually in. And so then when things like this happen, those two places, right, in front of us and behind us, they're not as accessible and we're less comfortable where we are. So I think that, I don't know if that made sense, but that's what I feel- no, it like it does. We end up dealing with.
0: Right. And, I, I, and that's where I guess like what, I'm hearing you say, and what, what I've been feeling, maybe a better way of sort of framing the question is like, <laughs> is normal a toxic idea that we need to get rid of?
1: I think we're doing it already, Luke. I would I would argue that the teens of today, so not Generation X, and I'm terrible with these names, uh, or no, I'm sorry, not, not the millennials, but the generation that comes after them. The Zoomers. Okay, they are already telling us normal doesn't work. Yeah. Right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I think normal is toxic. I just think it's not tenable to, to try to, I mean, it isn't. We come in different shapes, sizes, with different temperaments, uh, with different beliefs. So from my perspective, and, and I might be adding too much therapy to this, but all this divisiveness, it's actually really important. We need to see it. Hmm. We need to understand that it exists before we can work to make it better, to make it less, right? I think up to a certain point in time, we've just sort of been chugging along and not noticing it Right. because it's easier, again, to focus on what's in front of me. I've got – I'm over here trying to achieve that. I can't notice you over here not agreeing with me because my right. goal is out here. But it's the in-the-present-moment experiences that actually matter the most. Mm. And so – um, I feel like all of this that's happened over the last four years in particular has really helped us to see that we can't assume, we can't assume democracy is safe. We can't assume that, well, we just can't make assumptions about what is okay and what's not okay and and that normal is something we need.
0: Hmm. That sends my mind spinning off in so many possible directions, one of which is like we can't assume these things that are fundamental to our understanding of who we are probably as people and certainly people who live on this particular landmass in this particular time and space. If we can't assume democracy, whatever, or the American Republic, how do people as individuals who aren't going to have a ton of individual autonomy and power to control the way that sort of shit works out, how do we all stay grounded? You know, when we can't control the state level restrictions that were just announced, we can't control the lack of a federal response that getting the aid money that we need when we can't control our fellow sort of citizens' reactions to these things.
1: Okay. So <laughs> here we go. I mean, I, I've been working in mental health for over two decades now, right? And Above and beyond everything else, there are kind of two things that I know to be true. One, normal is a word that I think serves a purpose in a number of different circumstances. You know, you you want your sourdough bread to have some normalcy to it. You want you you <laughs> want you want your chocolate chip cookies to look and taste a certain way, and and so some things. You know, expecting normal out of certain things makes a lot of sense, okay. but human beings are exceptionally complex and yeah. that's a beautiful thing. And so I think it's in that context that I emphasize that, you know, why, why, why look for normal? Why not focus yeah. on sort of the, the bigger picture of being true to ourselves, being generous with ourselves, caring for ourselves? Because when we can do those things, when we can care for ourselves, we can care for other people. When we can be generous with ourselves, when, when we can make a mistake and be like, well, okay, that did not go really well. We need to repair that. We can do that when we are in a safe and social state, which means our central nervous system is not triggered. We are not in fight or flight. And to do that, we have to, we have to be able to, to stay present and not focus on what we, you know, it's going to go back to the other thing I was saying about sort of the parenting piece. If we're focused on what we're not doing well, we get stuck in that. But if we can yeah. focus on what we're doing well, we stay in this state that allows us to grow and develop. I think that that's a really important piece of this in terms of our divisiveness, part of evolving as a human species is, you know, is learning greater acceptance of ourselves. It's also learning that feelings, they're not going anywhere. I mean, I think in terms of overall health, mental health is still lagging behind a little bit. There are a lot of stereotypes out there that prevent people from seeking support. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of discomfort around our negative feelings. And so we tend to stuff them and and over-intellectualize them, think them away or rationalize them. And so does that end up with us needing to defend some position? Right. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's where I go with that question.
0: So I guess what I hear you saying, and tell me if this is correct. So with something like a pandemic where you feel like you're completely out of control so what you do is you google like you were talking about and you try to figure out exactly all of the best um and i've had some friends that do this i didn't do this so much because I'm, I'm too add to like stay on task for this long but like people who just like followed every uh infectious disease specialist they could find on twitter and were like paying attention to the minute by minute evolution of people's understanding of this disease and eventually they burned themselves out but maybe what i hear you saying and, and tell me if this is what you're actually saying it's like we can't control the, the course of this virus as individuals, I mean. So we sort of like do our best. We get hyper vigilant about, okay, I'm going to at least protect myself. I'm going to at least protect my family. That becomes a sort of like intellectual dogma that then like when people, you know, you're walking in a store and somebody doesn't have a mask on, that becomes like this moment of just like triggering conflict or is that right?
1: Right. So, so thank you for bringing it back there. Cause that question had two parts and I left the control part out. So here's what I would say about that. Control, we don't have control. We've never had control. Mm. Not in that bigger sense. When you think about it, what do we actually have control over? What's right in front of you? I can't control the weather tomorrow. I can't control whether or not um, everyone is going to be driving safely on the road. I can't control who's going to wear masks. I can't control what the governor is going to say. I have control over where I'm sitting right now how much caffeine I had before you and I started talking, I have control over <laughs> these these things, right? Yeah. I have control over how I interact with my children or the food I put in my mouth, but I don't have control over how someone else feels about something. Yeah. And I think the more out of control we feel and a pandemic is like the quintessential example of not having control The more out of control we feel, the majority of us, then to cope with that, try to take control back. And how we do that, that's, I mean, I think this actually goes all the way back to one of the first questions we talked about today, which is what can we be doing to take care of ourselves? Mm -hmm. Noticing what we can control, actually control. So literally noticing, oh, I can control having a glass of water right now. I cannot control if I take a walk who I'm going to come across that has a mask on or not. Yeah. Some of us take control in these very sort of fastidious ways. Like we have super organized closets or we make a lot of lists. Uh, some of us try to take control in our relationships. And then others of us try to get our control by making comments on social media that, you know, about the truth or made upness of a pandemic. So I think ultimately... The more we practice noticing what we actually have control over, the less controversy, the less divisiveness there really is.
0: Hmm. What does that mean? And maybe there's no answer to this yet, or we don't know, or we does that mean everybody just goes to their corners, or everybody just gets a little bit more comfortable with you know people saying that? Um, the vaccines are going to control your mind with 5G airwaves. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, it it would look a little bit like this. If there are three of us standing in a circle and someone is really struggling and just starts spouting off about whatever it is, the weather. Yeah. And I'm noticing that it makes me anxious, all of this. And I take a few breaths and quietly in my mind ask myself all right what do i need right now to be okay and i do that i just notice what i need to be okay i can stand there with that person i can let them have that moment and i don't need to do anything i don't need to fix them i don't need to change their mind right i get to di- i create enough space to ask the following question do i dig in right now or not hmm. see i think the thing is we're just we're always moving so fast yeah that we don't, and we're always seeking control sort of in front of us. Again, it's more of that like moving in f- in front kind of thing that we, we don't have, an, we don't take enough time to stop and say, all right, what do I need right now? Which is always needs to be the first question. You can, if you're asking, what do you need right now? You're not gonna, we do a better job when we're checking with ourselves first. What do I need right now to be present in this moment? Yeah. And then if I can get that, then I can sit with you or stand with you or be there and I can say, wow, that sounds really tough. I don't have to agree. We're always going to have different opinions. We are always going to disagree. We are not hardwired to agree. We're hardwired to connect. Those are different things, but we can understand, right? We can understand. So someone who says something really inflammatory on someone's newsfeed or makes a a really intense comment, why? What's going on for them? Yeah. When we can take care of ourselves, we can ask that question. Wow, that person is really struggling right now. And then when you know that, do you really need to respond or can you just be like, I'm so sorry? That's what I'm getting at in all of this.
0: It follows then that you can, it's not up to any individual person to be a foot soldier in the fact check wars or in the uh, the morality wars or the wars of the fundamental truth or falsity of human existence. Exactly. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because we're always going to... I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that if we were teaching social and emotional development beyond kindergarten, if we kept teaching that, if we teach not just psychology in high school, which you know we teach kids sort of the history of psychology, but if we were teaching mental health, like we teach physical health, would we be raising generations of people who, who are better at empathizing with one another. Hmm. That's the important piece because if I feel understood, and again, think about our central nervous systems. When I don't feel understood, I am sliding into that place where I am defensive and we take a defensive stance when we don't feel safe emotionally, physically, cognitively, whatever it is. If I feel understood, not agreed with, just understood, then I'm safe enough to unpack a little bit and compromise. Mm. Compromise cannot occur when we are in an unsafe state.
0: Mm. That's fascinating. The
1: tricky bit is I think this plays out. I mean, we see this in issues of race, our issues of gender, right? There, those are really yeah. clear examples of where people aren't feeling safe and it's, the conversations are profoundly hard to have. If we're teaching people to feel safe inside themselves, the conversations become a little bit easier to have. They're always gonna be challenging because we are always going to disagree. Yeah. But we, I believe firmly, and I see this in the evolution of our, our gender and sexual identity. I see that as sort of this very clear example of, we can evolve. We can evolve to expand our understanding of what it means to be a human. Right. So if we can do that, we can evolve to expand our understanding of what it means to sit with a human and to mm-hmm. walk forward with them, to create a space that we can all live in. And maybe that's a little bit idealized, but ultimately that's what we're, we need to be focusing on for there to be a healthy society.
0: A question that sort of concretizes that a little bit that uh, I'm curious about. Someone asked, I have questions around working with others at this time when everyone is so stressed. The constant stress seems to be bringing out really unpleasant and antisocial workplace behaviors in certain people. I'd be interested to hear how a mental health professional suggests small organizations give people space to have their feelings while also maintaining boundaries around appropriate workplace conduct.
1: Read a lot of Brene Brown. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, that's That's an excellent, excellent question, but is, I think, a really tough answer because it requires leadership that understands the really nuanced nature of how so so this goes right back to normal this question exemplifies the lack of normal. Yeah. Everyone's response to the kind of increased stress in our lives right now is a little bit different. And some of us are going to kind of hunker down and do our job and just be like, see ya. And some of us are going to need to reach out more. And some of us are going to be prickly. And some of us are going to do all of those things plus more. Yeah, Just depends on the day. All of those responses would fit in my book under what we currently call normal. They're all, you know, not unexpected responses to stress and anxiety. When you're in a small workplace and those responses are then increasing stress and anxiety for others, right? Right. That's where I think right now I would be, you know, asking employers to look at, do you have workers who could like be taking a little bit more time off? than they would normally? Or do you have, you know, if you're noticing that level of stress or anxiety in someone, can they work from home for a week or two? But ultimately, I think that this time is illustrating for us the need as a culture for it to be okay to both talk about how we're feeling, really feeling, and to be okay with the idea that we can have difficult and uncomfortable conversations with one another. And it doesn't mean I don't like you. Hmm. it just means i've got something that i need to talk about and i think yeah. both of those things we're not there yet as a society we struggle with those things
0: right and then i guess on the employer side it's like you know the we we have a lot you know there's all these rules that are uh, meant to sort of uh maintain a certain base level of uh like worker uh like accommodation, right? So, like you know, sick and safe leave is a law we passed where you get five days or whatever, and 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 that's a sense of like everybody gets that equal that equal amount of whatever, regardless of where you work, right? So there's like the regulated equality of workspaces. But what I hear you saying is that it would be a good time if you can handle it as an employer to be like, oh wow, Meg actually needs an extra week off because she's losing her shit. So we might just need to give we might need to give Luke some extra time, like yeah, whatever.
1: Yeah. The idea, Luke, that I I talk about, it needs to be okay not to be okay, right? So when people come up to you and they say, how are you right now? It needs to be really okay to say, I'm having a shitty day today or I'm okay, right? But when I ask people how they are, I am not expecting them to say, great, which is our sort of our standard response to that question. But it gives Mm -hmm. no information. It it does not promote connection. Mm -hmm. When when people ask me that question, I uh, probably to a fault answer it pretty genuinely. So right now I just say, well, I'm one foot in front of the other. Because that's the easiest way for yeah, me to right. explain. Sometimes I'm not okay. Sometimes I am. If I could sum everything that I want as a mental health provider for my community, it's that. I want us to come out of this understanding that it is okay to not always be okay. And it's mm-hmm. it's okay to say that. I'm not handling my stuff right now. I need to take care of my mental health the way I need to take care of my heart or my liver or my back or my vision, whatever it is.
0: So what then do we owe each other on the flip side of that? I can't, I mean, personally, like maybe I just like, you know, there's too much Protestant in me or too (laughs) much, I don't know what, but like- The idea of just like coming up to somebody I know, even somebody I know pretty well, like you, maybe, maybe I would feel comfortable with somebody like you or or another really close friend, but like somebody, do we also, should we also be mindful that we don't know exactly how the person that's on the receiving end of that answer is is uh feeling yeah. and how that might actually fuck them up a little yeah. bit to be like yeah
1: yeah 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 for
0: oh sure. well actually actually Meg I just had the worst day of my life how do you want to engage with
1: that um well quite frankly I'd make in pre COVID times a cup of tea and we'd sit down and just you know chat but yes absolutely you do <laughs> want to read your um you know the person you're speaking with and 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 make a decision about whether or not this is something you want to unpack with them so don't get me wrong yeah, I yeah. I do think that. I'm okay is an appropriate thing to say when you're talking to someone who you just want to say hi to and you just want to connect with, but maybe you know, yeah, you probably don't want to hear my whole story. I think from my perspective, the important piece is you don't have to say, I'm great.
0: I did notice myself, and I shared this with you, like I've been able to reconnect with my inner introvert in a way that I think has actually been kind of healthy for me personally. And when I sort of like step into that, because it's something I've avoided telling people kind of for the opposite reason. It's like, I don't want people who are really, really struggling to feel bad because I'm doing maybe better or it's allowed me to sort of reconnect with something in a way that maybe other people haven't been able to. But in certain circumstances, when I've felt like sharing that, it's never been a bad thing and it's almost always led to a pretty interesting discussion with that person to be like, wow, yeah, that's cool. Because I, I also think it it makes it allows us to normalize that like COVID's hard in a very specific way for everybody, but maybe the way that things were before was tough in a different way for certain people. And I, I think that could probably lead to some pretty healthy discussions yeah. about yeah. going back to that word we don't like anymore, normal. It's like what what sort of a normal do we want to return to, or what sort of a society, what's going to be there for us on the other side of this COVID thing?
1: I think we have some pretty incredible opportunities right now to hone, if you will, the way in which we connect. I think that that point you just made is very, very powerful in that imagine if we begin to practice being more genuine with one another, Mm. then you don't need 50 friends. Not that, you know, there's anything wrong with that, but...
0: But can I still have thousands of Facebook friends? Because that's... <laughs> right.
1: Well, okay. Maybe not unpacking all of this on Facebook. Just saying. But um, <laughs> but to be able to sit down with someone and say, you know, actually, here's what's really going on and have that person know they don't have to take it on. See, that's the tricky bit. It's like... Absolutely. That's the part of it's okay not to be Okay that I want to emphasize. This isn't about us suddenly becoming each other's therapists. It's about us developing a comfort with understanding that sometimes we're just not okay. And it's not my job to fix you, but I can sit with you. I can listen. I can say, I'm so sorry that you're going through that. Um, And that can be enough because I know that you know you're all right, right? Like. If we normalize, see, I like normal in this moment, if we normalize <laughs> the idea that we are not just a set of happy and regulated emotions, but we are actually a complex mix of challenging and healthy and safe and regulated emotions. and and that it ebbs and flows, but then then it becomes okay or safe or acceptable that we're not always in a perfectly balanced state.
0: That's awesome. Okay, I got one more nuts and bolts reader comment question and then I wanna get to a hope question that I ask everybody and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on and then we can kind of call it a day. So that question, how can families, parentheses, any group living under one dwelling, so (laughs) taking a broad and normalized uh, idea of what a family is, be proactive about the cabin fever that seems inevitable, knowing that it's coming, Are there things we can do up front to make it less traumatic?
1: Talk about it. I I mean, ultimately, I think this is about what what you and I were just talking about. Whether we are ready or not, now is the time to start practicing vulnerable, challenging conversations. And if people want something to read, they can read Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown. It's a great, easy read about this very subject. Um, You know, she... It uh, focuses more on workplace environments, but ultimately that book, uh, when I opened it, I happened to have some empty like art journals at the side of my desk, and it was so profound for me. I didn't get more than a page or two before I was like writing and illustrating how it made me feel. It's a great wow. read for thinking about and contemplating how we feel in challenging conversations and who we are in those moments and I know you're really good with links and sort of background info. And so if you just, she's got a great podcast. She's got a lot of really good books. She's a, so I think a social worker and, and she has focused on, um, looking at vulnerability, compassion and just sort of workplace, how, how we have these difficult conversations in the context of hierarchies. Um, What makes great leadership? She interviewed uh, Joe Biden and talked about leadership. It's a really interesting um, discussion, in particular, no matter which side you're on, about what sociology and social work say about leadership. But anyhow, I think ultimately to answer the reader's question, if you've got a group of people that you have, you know, that you're living with that you have to survive the next couple of months with. Taking some time to sit down and just say, hey, this is going to be hard and I want us all to understand that, that we can be genuine with one another about that. Just kind of setting that table, right? And then I would even create some uh, ritual or process around that once a month check-ins um you know i mean i have a lot of ideas for how we get through this i think we have to be creative i think we should be having lots of small celebrations with each other mm. you know our our people at at home um thanksgiving is great but what are we going to do 2 weeks from then so yeah, you know do right. we uh celebrate quarter birthdays and <laughs> uh, half birthdays and yeah. a- anything we can get our hands on in little tiny ways. Maybe it's movie night. Maybe we stay up late night. Those things are going to help too. But, but having this like once a month check-in where literally everyone gets to go around the table, what's easy, what's hard, Yeah. anything you need us to know or talk about. And we create this space and maybe people don't say anything right away, but the fact that you're asking matters, it really, really matters.
0: All right. So the, here's the big hope question. And we've already touched on this in a, num, in, in a number of places. So maybe we could just sort of tie it all together. What in this moment is giving you hope for the future? Mm,
1: I think professionally, this is a huge time for my profession. I mean, it's, it's an interesting, there's a little dichotomy here in that you know we are, we're in a mental health provider shortage. For sure. Yeah. On the other hand, I don't know if that means we should be adding like a ton of mental health providers in general. I, I this is a pandemic. It's hard. Yeah,
2: right. People
1: are going to need more help, I, you know, in, in different times. I think our community probably still needed a few more mental health providers, but not a massive amount, right? This isn't like the PPE thing where we need somebody to be just like
2: Churning out assembly
1: line Churning out. producing yeah, yeah, yeah. therapists. On the other hand, I think that is something to be aware of, that that it's going to be taxing on those providers. But what gives me hope is the idea that we understand that we need to be talking more, that people are seeing how their feelings, they matter. Mm. And I feel like coming out of this, will we be more primed? to have conversations about how we work collectively. I think that's ultimately it. There are incredible opportunities to refine the conversation we have about being a a community. The politics, the social pieces, our mental health, they all intersect. They're not unique uh, experiences. They happen to us, and they intersect with all these other pieces. But we have to live, breathe, and work together. We're not living in isolation and and is this a time for us to really notice and improve how we come together
0: and if that's the case, I'm guessing what you would say is we're not going into a mode where we are behaving in a in an a way that is only in an emergency way that's only going to last for this the length of this emergency what What I hear you saying is what we have an opportunity to do is build in new ways of thinking about ourselves thinking about our communities talking to ourselves talking to our communities that if we do it right we could emerge from this not just alive but it could it could have a beneficial impact on of uh, the post covid society as well
1: well i and and i would say i don't want us to emerge from this doing that i want us to do it now i mean it's it's yeah. it's a huge part of why i reached out you know the other thing too is the the actual physical issues of the pandemic will end before the mental health crisis does. The trajectory, you know, there's a lot of research on this and the trajectory is that as we get closer to, you know, people being vaccinated and uh, better herd immunity, the actual physical risks may dissipate. But we will be recovering from this from a mental health standpoint for a a significant time after that because then there's the whole like issue of, feeling comfortable re-entering society together. And so not only do we have this opportunity to look at how we come together and refine it, we're going to have it for a while. And so we have a lot of opportunity. And it's, from my perspective, incredibly exciting because we deserve this. Hmm. We all matter. And that, again, no platitudes there. I mean, every single one of us matters. And we're all trying our best every day To be good human beings, I firmly believe that. How we come together will help us all to see that and to feel more valued and appreciated by one another. And I think that just moves us forward.
0: Yeah. Well, Meg, thank you for doing this. Uh, Thanks for texting me last night. I'm glad we were able to get this uh, somewhat emergency pod in.
1: Me too.
0: Yeah. I said we'd feel better, right? I feel a lot better. Okay, so I'm not going to take any more of your time because you still have homework, everyone. Your job is not done. If you haven't already, go over to the Range Substack and look at the article I just posted that Meg mostly wrote. I uh, just sort of added goofery and probably needless flourish. But the bones of the thing were written by an actual mental health professional. Uh, No one should be taking advice from me. But it's called, It Needs to Be Okay Not to Be Okay. And it's 10 tips, 10-ish. There's like 11. I added an 11th that came out of the conversation you just heard for handling this first winter with COVID. And maybe, just maybe, hopefully, cross your fingers, but also, you know, smoke them if you got them. Maybe how our society might emerge stronger from this. I mean, we can hope, right? Dream. But it's gonna take all of us working together, reading the article, internalizing it, making it part of your daily practice, but then also sharing it as widely as possible and also subscribing to range. The only way the world is gonna get better is if you subscribe to the newsletter, guys, and demand that your friends and family, but also your enemies do the same. That weird lady who always gets a little too personal on the work Zoom calls, for example. Do it for me, but do it for society. How's that for a sales pitch? All right, have a good weekend, y'all.